It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here, and he's going to analyze how Apple Pay, or at least how he thinks, what, we, what we've deduced about how Apple Pay works, how that's going to change payments in general, and how secure is it. It's all coming up right now on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 477, recorded October 14th, 2014. Payment tokenization. Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging, informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device. For 30% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash security now. And don't forget to use the code SN30. And by Citrix ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with Citrix ShareFile. Try ShareFile today for a 30-day free trial. Go to ShareFile.com, click the microphone, and enter security now. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it's supposed to be, anonymously and without oversight. Save 50% off with a 12-month subscription. Go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN50 at checkout. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online with that guy right there. His name, Steve Gibson, a name you must remember because he is your best bet on the Internet. I just made a slogan for you. Hi, Steve. The best bet on the Internet. Well, okay. He's, uh, he's protecting us, my friends. Protecting I'm the us. only... I'm the only bet you have, so uh. and I'm I'm here and I'm keeping an eye out on things. Yes, sir. So, so um, I the, the my original working title for today's podcast, I was going to have a little fun and call it Apple Pray, P R P R A Y, because they would be praying for it to happen as as opposed to p r e y where you know they would be preyed upon or they would be some other people would be prey i thought okay apple pray that's kind of fun i like it um and and i was all i was i was also initially sort of skeptical like like we we commented when the 5 came out the iphone 5 that it was missing NFC, and that seemed like a mistake. And then when they did the second round of five, the, the S, it's like, wait, still no NFC? Boy, this seems like a bigger mistake. Now, finally, with with the six, we have NFC. But it seems like a heavy lift to where your requirement for Apple Pay is a new iPhone and adoption at the other end of nfc terminals um but the more i looked into this i mean i've i've spent you know my spare time this last week digging into what like the whole backstory here and i realized this is actually much less about apple than apple would like 
much less about Apple than the than all of the technical press seems to think. I mean, that's you know, Apple's been been like the focus. Naturally, it's called Apple Pay, so th- that makes sense. But but as I looked into it, I realized the good news for, for example, all Android owners, of which there are many more than Apple, and and all of whom already have NFC enabled phones, is that. The role Apple has played, and I mean, we're and like has like last month and this month because we're expected maybe that this is going to like get activated in three days, right? On Thursday, maybe with the iPad announcement, and that may be when this actually happens. That Apple ends up being the the prime mover. I mean, there there have been efforts at this that have sort of limped along and not quite achieved critical mass. There are players who who thought they could go their own way and and have like created pieces of this that we'll be talking about uh, in this podcast today that it that never achieved critical mass. And so we all ultimately I think owe Apple our thanks for finally getting around to deciding it's time for this kind of nudging well, it along. It, well, yeah, and was, I think it was you know what it it gave it critical mass. Yes, it was, and, it and was all, in position. It was ready, and Apple just kind of pushed it over the edge. Also, um, it, as as I looked around, I have a better sense for how much Apple did and what they didn't, and they did a lot, but they didn't by any means create this. Um, their specification is based on something that began 12 years ago. Um, and anyway, so I renamed the podcast. The podcast's name ended up being Payment Tokenization. And well, that's catchy. It's, it's, <laughs> it's well, it's trust, also fitting for trust, this podcast. Trust Steve not to worry about <laughs> SEO or any of that. You know, <laughs> Apple Prey, now that would catch some downloads. Payment tokenization—that's yeah. security now. And if you listen to that sh- this show, that's that's what you're looking for, frankly. Well, and what and, and and the the full working title is payment tokenization, or why indirection is a good thing. Ah, all right. I get where you're coming from, dude. And uh, I think this is a good topic. You know, uh, Apple will certainly talk about it day after tomorrow. There it was a leaked training memo from Walgreens saying they were going to implement Saturday. Mm. I think the other thing to point out uh, is that Apple timed it because they knew that Congress had mandated and Visa and MasterCard had agreed that we would move to new payment systems next year, chip and pin. And so the old swipe and signature cards... Swipe and pray. Swipe and pray. (laughs) That's the real praying. Um, Those would become obsolete next year, and most merchants would have to be would be incented to strongly upgrade terminals, upgrade to uh, touch and touch and pay terminals uh, to go along with their new chip and pin terminals. So you know it's all in one. So I think Apple is really benefiting as much from that as anything else. But hey, who cares? This is going to be good. I think we'll find out. In just a second, Steve will explain the security uh, around it and whether you can trust it. But first, a word from a company uh, we've known for some time. A couple of guys I really uh, I love. Uh, it all start, and I love them because they love me. It, I'm easy that way. It all started uh, when Tim and Don uh, 
came to a talk I gave at uh, the NAB show and encouraged people to try build, doing what we did, build a video studio, uh, you know, with cameras and switchers and all that stuff for narrow niche uh, content, as we have done. Tim and uh, uh, Don were, uh, were, uh, had had a business all along training people uh, for taking those tests, you know, the uh, certification tests, the A-plus or the MCSE and all of those. And they thought, wow, you know, we could... We could do what Leo does for IT professionals, for IT training, and they found an IT Pro TV. What? And they're on the air right now. Let's go. We can go peek and see because, you know, when they go to the website, you see a little blinking red light. You can see uh, what they're doing. They have a program guide. This is very much like TWIT except with the goal of helping you study for the CompTIA A-plus exam or the Cisco certs, the CCNP the MCSC Microsoft Search. In fact, if you go to the course library at itpro.tv, you'll see that they've got training in a lot of areas, including new stuff for uh, Mac IT professionals. They've got the security, the new ISC squared security certs. Really good trainer on the security stuff. You'll love it. Um, that's the ISC squared stuff. This is uh, coming up next year, the EC Council CEH. I love this. I'm going to take this one, Certified Ethical Hacker. Are you ready? Are you ready to be a certified ethical hacker? I just want that after my name. Leo Laporte, certified ethical hacker. They've got the office training, lots of it, as you can see here. And they're doing more all the time. In fact, they do about 30 hours of programming each and every week. They have Linux. Look, there's a Wireshark course. That's awesome. Hyper-V, Zen Server. I want you to visit itpro.tv slash security now you can find out more and take advantage of a very special offer it's very affordable anyway in fact one of the things they've done you know by the way you can watch this on your roku your computer your tablet um one of the things they've done is uh they've made this so that it costs a lot less than going to a technical school really it's comparable to just buying a book uh, $570 a year for the premium plan, $57 a month. If you subscribe for the year, you can download all the content. Keep it on your uh, portable device so that you can watch it on the airplane. You also get a virtual machine sandbox lab environment for hands-on practice with any HTML5 browser. The Measure Up practice exams are included with your subscription. You get so much. They also have, if you're in a business, uh, corporate accounts uh, for departments and companies so you can keep your IT pros up to speed. Really great. Visit them, take a tour, all that's free. And if you decide to buy, I just invite you to use the offer code SN30 to get, get this, 30% off your subscription for the lifetime of your account. That means it's less than $40 a month, $399 for the entire year. Take your, take your pick of uh, certs, polish up your skills, become an IT whiz, itpro.tv slash security now. And now that well, they, they keep adding stuff, now they have sign up for our SMS service to receive text messages when they go live. This is what we wanted to do. Now, now this I don't like. They're actually getting better than Twit. Itpro.tv slash security. Now I'm just kidding. Say hi to Tim and Don. They're great people and a great service. All right, Steve, let's launch into it. You've got security news, I imagine. Oh, we always do that. Um, okay, this is Patch Tuesday. And... 
this is sort of a special Patch Tuesday because a uh, a coordinated release of information about a major zero-day exploit, which is patched with today's Tuesday patches, has all been put together. Um, a, a, a security research firm, Eyesight Partners, identified some time ago something that they're calling uh, the Sandworm Team. Ew. They've got there, there are um, there are five teams of of attackers. Um, this is my new attempt to use the word attacker rather than hacker. I like because, that. That's good. Yeah, I, I, it sits well with me. I think that's the right thing to do. Um, there are uh, they've identified in Russia five different Russian groups, and they they see them in teams because they seem to have um, aside from teamwork. Um, sort of collective styles by team. This group um, uses uh, references to Dune, the classic sci-fi yeah, that's sandworms. series. That's where sandworms come from. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. In their command and control Shai URLs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in, in their command and control URLs uh, and in the various malware samples that have been found. So it turns out that they've been involved in the sandworm group um, and thus, the sandworm zero day exploit has been um, has been attacks uh, targeted phishing attacks um, against NATO, uh, Ukrainian government organizations, Western European government organizations, energy sector firms, specifically in Poland, um, in uh, several Western uh, I'm sorry European telecommunication firms, and an unnamed U.S. academic organization. So, so explicit, deliberate attacks have been traced back to this group. And wh- when the attacks were analyzed some time ago, um, the Eyesight Partners group, that the security firm, saw the use of a then-unknown flaw which was, uh, I got a kick out of this because it says all supported version of Windows. Well, it didn't exist in XP. XP has always been safe. It was introduced in Service Pack 2 of Vista and has been in Windows ever since. So from Vista Service Pack 2 on um, is this zero day, which which they analyzed and informed Microsoft of immediately saying, ah, you guys may need to fix this pretty quickly because this is being exploited right now by Russians against um, various groups around the world. So, um, so today's Patch Tuesday fixes that among, you know, the regular gaggle. Uh, there's a bunch of .NET vulnerabilities, a, a, a collection of remote uh, code execution things. So, again, standard uh, advice. This is Patch Tuesday. Update your Windows. Um, though I would I would argue that now that this is known, it's it's become uh, known. There will be a heightened interest in using it before it gets patched, which means that 
patching is all the more important. Um, and I think I remember seeing that they were explicitly using um, PowerPoint presentations as the as the delivery vehicle. So they were they were sending PowerPoint presentations to people uh, with you know human factors, uh, social engineering exploits wrapped around them to get people to open these, and that's the way this stuff was getting in. It was a a vulnerability in the uh, OLE, the Object Linking and Embedding Package Manager in Microsoft Windows and Server, um, as I mentioned, introduced with Vista's Service Pack 2. Uh, so it affects all versions of Windows up through 8.1 uh, and ser- Windows Server versions uh, eight, 2008 and 2012. It is a an arbitrary code execution vulnerability in something called the packager.dll, that's the file that has the problem, which allows the execution of INF files. So uh, PowerPoint was the entry vehicle that leveraged this this uh, packager, uh, as, as we used to call it, Olay, object linking and embedding, uh, that was uh, you know part of the um, evolution of Win32 as Microsoft was moving forward before .NET and all that. Uh, so just, uh, I would say, don't uh, either be very careful with anything that might get, get sent to you and or uh, get Windows patched uh, sooner rather than later. Any exploit? Well, it's a zero day, so there's exploits in the wild already, right? Yeah. it's Oh, it's been happening. And um, so, you know, targeted attacks and my... And they've been keeping it relatively quiet and using it while it wasn't known. So the 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 calculation, the calculus about how to use this changes today with now that it's become known, there's no reason for those who know of it to keep it quiet. And analysis of this vulnerability, will allow other people to figure it out to reverse engineer the patch and make it more widespread. So now there so this goes from being hush hush targeted, you know, we know of a vulnerability nobody else knows about, so we're going to be careful not to not to expose it. Now the logic is let's use it as fast as we can before people get patched. So so during this window from disclosure to patch, they, they what we've seen in the past is is a flood of attempted exploit. So so the the more the more casual user is now going to be exposed to this, where before it was being used in you know much uh, more kind of undercover. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They were using it to penetrate specific organizations. Uh, nice hat, Leo. Thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> There's a reason why I'm wearing this panda. Uh, I'm going to just keep focused on my notes. Someone will explain it to you on Twitter, I'm sure. Okay. Um, (laughs) Speaking of foxes. Yes. uh, We have a new Firefox version 33. And something happened with 33 that I thought was really nice, which is we've, we've touched on this off and on, and I know you've talked about it uh, on the on the network, and that is the problem with the arguably the best compression technology, was which is 8.264, being encumbered by patents. 
and patents have long dogged the you know the high the, the high quality compression because they've always been present and and so people have sort of had to use less you know a little sort of maybe patent murky you know alternatives and so forth um Cisco has finally agreed to to essentially open source and license their open H264 codec. And with Firefox version 33 that just happened hours ago, uh, if you go if you if you've got Firefox running and, and go into help about, you'll see that you've got probably 32.02 and it'll immediately start spinning this little wheel and downloading 33. Um, what's interesting about this is Firefox cannot themselves bundle this open H264 codec. But when you load Firefox 33, it will, it itself, your instance of the Firefox browser, will go get a verified build, verify, they figured out how to, how to verifiably download from Cisco a, a codec built from the source which Cisco has put up on GitHub. So all of this fancy glue was put together that ends up allowing Firefox to now finally support H.264. You know, arguably the codec everyone wants to support. Not, for example, I think it, it was forced to use VP8, which was the the one that sort of had it. It kind of came through, what, uh, Adobe and Flash and... Then, well, VP8 was a Google, and, uh, wasn't that Google that... Uh... Yeah, you're right. Because they wanted an unencumbered, unencumbered video codec they were looking for. Right. Yeah. Right. And M of course, MP4 and the others yeah. are owned by somebody. Yeah. And and now we have H.264, right. which is uh, available in Firefox. And But that's owned um, by the and, MPEG and, Motion Picture Group. That's the problem, you know. And they've said, we'll, we'll never charge for that, except we don't know, because Microsoft and Apple and all the others are big players in there, so. Uh, okay. That's well, why Google now, wants to do this. Uh, it's a big, okay. you know, you're you're stepping into a big political fracas that's been going so, on for some time. So the good news is Firefox has it now. <laughs> yes, for free. Yes, and when you load Firefox, it'll get it'll go to Cisco and get the codec. Right. So um, also that should, that should be a hint right there that there's a problem. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So uh, faster, snappier searches in Firefox 33. Uh, they did something with with JavaScript strings that made a huge difference. They were recognizing that large text apps like Gmail was taking an awful lot of space when you loaded a whole bunch of JavaScript strings. And they also noticed that most of the strings, even though they were taking up two bytes because they were Unicode, they were they were they were um, strings that would fit in a byte. And so what this change did, uh, and this is first reflected in, JavaScript, in, in Firefox 33, is they're now using 8-bit characters where they can rather than 16 bits. And in some testing, for example, a, they loaded Gmail in Firefox 
Uh, and in Vi Firefox 32, it took 11 megs to of uh, on this one browser tab to contain Gmail. Under 30 in Firefox 33, 5.5. So it cut it in half, which is uh, you'd expect from a character representation going from 16-bit characters to 8-bit characters. Um, so this is neat for uh, for users of heavy str JavaScript string apps like Gmail. Um, so a nice improvement in Firefox 33. Uh, and then uh, they've, they've beefed up Session Restore. So I guess there were some ways that Firefox could collapse or crash or your Windows could die or various things could happen where, you w where Session Restore would not be there for you. Um, and uh, it looks like they're, I mean, they're very bullish about that now in 33. It looks like they've, they've got that nailed. Uh, and then a bunch of other little things uh, like a CSS3 stuff, uh, custom counter styles are now supported. There's some experimental work. A 4x4 matrix is represented natively, so, so, which, is, which speeds up 2 and 3D operations for, for, ma for matrix uh, management and mul multiplication and manipulation and so forth. So uh, just to you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's funny because I, as I wrote down 33, I thought, boy, you know, it wasn't long ago we were at version 3 and then we moved after a couple years to 4. And then, of course, they went on to this whole okay, we're going to accelerate our, our versioning and not not just move so slowly, which has been a, a nice change. And, uh, you know, Firefox uh, continues to stay current. Uh, it and Chrome, I think, are probably the, the two browsers of choice now. Now, all we have is a rumor of something wrong with SSL version 3 which is not going to be announced until around noon tomorrow. Noon, so this is Tuesday, the 14th of October. Uh, around noon on Wednesday, October 15th, the, the release of information, which is known to those who are apparently busily patching SSL version 3 Right now, um, we just don't know what this is. I, I picked up something in the grapevine about some about a, a a version regression problem. Like maybe there's a way to cause it to use security suites that you'd rather it didn't use. That that kind of thing. Or maybe it's a TLS problem where there you, there's a way to get TLS to fall back to three. When, and then you lose some of the features of TLS that, that version 3 of SSL didn't support. It, it might be, you know, not a big deal. We just don't know. Uh, I wanted to mention it because I'll certainly be on the lookout for this n tomorrow. Uh, I'll tweet what is known if it's important. Uh, I'm happy to jump on with Sarah for the, the second round of tech news uh, in the afternoon uh, if you guys want me. Uh, to figure out what this means, maybe just say, well, okay, it's I'll nothing. Pass, I'll pass it along, yeah. Good, yeah. thank you. Or, or maybe it'll, it's something. So at this point, we're sort of in this odd place where where the news is out that something is going to be announced tomorrow that that the those who are responsible are right now patching um, in advance of everyone finding out. 
and again, it may be a small thing. My sense is it's, as I have, the, the phrase I like is tempest in a teapot, that it's like not that big a deal. But, you know, we'll, ha- we'll have to wait and see. So I just wanted to give people a heads up that there may be some news. Oftentimes it seems that things happen on Wednesday right after the podcast. Um, well, it's, it's like uh, Shell Shock was a Wednesday event. It's like, oh! We gotta wait seven days. <laughs> Steve, you just call. We'll get you on. Just, we'll figure it out. Just let me know. Yeah. Um, I also did pick up on another. It, it's funny. I, having spent our time ta- talking about supercapacitors some years ago, um, people now think of this podcast, and uh, you know, as I get, I guess they their their sense is they can send me news of what. Okay, what does this mean? about energy storage and I'm interested enough in it that I'll figure out what it means and then I'll I'll tell everybody. So what's interesting about this is this is a, a news item that was in uh, 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 posted on physics.org site um, about a, a, sort of where we are is are we going to stay with batteries or are we going to do something bizarre and new like supercapacitors? And batteries have the advantage of, of of a huge supply chain in place, lots of electrochemistry understanding. Uh, th- th- there's already like a big industry in place. And so if we do something completely new, that there's a, a big tooling time, you know, for like tooling up to, to implement something. If we're able to make a what is a relatively small change to an existing electrochemistry, then that has the potential to actually happen, which is good because, you know, <laughs> that's what it act when, when the when, when the battery gets into our phone is when we care. So what we have here is that a relatively small change from the guy that did lithium ion 34 years ago, who's still at it. And this is changing the traditional lithium-ion graphite electrode, the anode in the, in the lithium-ion cell, to a gel suspension of a titanium dioxide nanotube. And nano stuff happens in batteries now because the, the, what you need is surface area. The, the key is in order to, in order to prevent batteries from dying because the surface area gets corroded and corrupted and that the 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 limitation on charging rate is also a surface area deal the more area you have the the more current you can push in to the battery without causing damage to the battery and so nano stuff seems to be where we are so these nanotubes are as you can imagine, being a tube, high surface area things, uh, in this case made of titanium dioxide, um, the result of this is they have batteries in the lab which, uh, which are fundamentally lithium-ion chemistry, that is lithium-ion electrochemistry, which is well understood and for which, like all of this existing manufacturing system already exists which can be charged to 70% of full capacity in two minutes as opposed to many hours, lasts 
10,000 recharge cycles, which is to say has a 20-year life and is basically uh, an electrochemistry already in place. So uh, patents are being granted, uh, licensees are signing up, and this this could be this is something it feels like something that could that we could see a year from now where you know the next generation of our portable devices of for example iPhones with non-removable batteries could be charging in in minutes rather than hours and where battery lifetime of a non-removable battery is no longer an issue and of course the electric vehicle market is panting for this sort of thing, you need the you need the capacity to deliver a tremendous amount of current in a short time. But this could start to make the equivalent of electric gas stations feasible. If you can get seventy percent capacity in two minutes, well, we spend two minutes putting liquid gas in our you know gasoline in our tanks right now. So the problem is, you know, the typical home doesn't have the ability to deliver that kind of current in that short a time. So, uh, but something like, you know, an electric filling station could. So anyway, we'll see. But uh, yeah, the, uh, so thank you for uh, those, those listeners who sent this to me. I got it from a bunch of people because they said, oh, you know, what does this look like? And it's, it looks good. Finally, there's been some odd news about Dropbox in over the last week about uh, user about, you know, did they get hacked? Was Dropbox hacked? Um, Pastebin has been the recipient of, of some several hundreds of login credentials, which have been verified before they, before Dropbox neutered them. People were downloading them from Pastebin and logging in successfully to other people's Dropbox accounts, which reminds me before I forget about it. I, you know, the, I ran across something that I guess what started off as a as a title um, in a recent security conference um, that that Ars Technica picked up on, and then I saw it there and tweeted it. I just loved it, and it's an, it's a it's a it's a perfect meme for the Security Now podcast. Rather than the Internet of Things, which is the terminology we typically use for for the Security Now podcast, it's the Internet of Other People's Things. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Which I think is perfect. I don't know if Microsoft would like it, but I like it. So, the paste bin poster, the guy who's been putting these hundreds of login credentials up on paste bin claims that 6,937,081 account credentials have been leaked. And, you know, the... The use of a of a number like that is is a little convincing. It's like, oh, you know, yeah, it, yeah. you know, you'd you'd expect an actual number rather than oh, almost seven million. Okay, well, okay, uh, no, six million nine hundred thirty seven thousand and eighty one. <laughs> that many. Um, so maybe this is a come on. We don't really sure what this is because they've sort of posted a few hundred. Then the attackers are asking for more money. They're asking for money in return for the release of additional credential data. I know. Meanwhile, Dropbox has reset the passwords of all the credentials that have been posted and 
in the latest news, Dropbox responds, Dropbox has not been hacked. They said, quote, these usernames and passwords were unfortunately stolen from other services and used in attempts to log on to Dropbox accounts. We had previously detected these attacks, and the vast majority of the passwords posted have been expired for some time now. All other remaining passwords have been expired as well. So I don't know what the story is. This, to me, this maybe looks like um, a come on by the people who posted these saying, look, uh, here are some some credentials that work. So imagine that that they in fact got a much smaller number or, 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 or say that they took an existing um, large breach because there have been, you know, large breaches on sort of an ongoing basis. They attempted to use those to log into Dropbox, found a bunch of people who unfortunately reused their password on the leaked accounts, you know, their leaked credentials, uh, and on Dropbox. Gathered those together, posted them on Dropbox, or posted them on Pastebin saying, not only do we have these hundred, or hundreds, few hundreds, which is probably all they actually have, but we have 6,937,081 more. Pay us some money and we'll release those, which in fact they may not have. To me, it sounds like they probably don't. So I think that's the actual, you know, piecing together from what, what, you know, fragmentary information we have, that sort of fits the facts. So we'll see if anything more comes of this. But if we're to believe Dropbox, and I I think we have to because they made a formal statement, I just don't think there's a major breach, you know, of 7 million Dropbox accounts. They're saying no. They mean they're saying we know what happened and that's all, which, you know, to me makes sense. Um, I did want to share a, a fun note that I that I ran across. This was just uh, th- okay. This is sort of a blast from the past. The, the, you'll get a kick out of this, Leo, uh, uh, and it it also incorporates a bit of a Spinrite testimonial uh, from Matthew Power, who is a Spinrite customer, and he wrote to our support email um, saying, "He said I am a very satisfied owner of the Spinrite product." Since my purchase, Spinrite has brought back three, all caps, unmountable drives, exclamation point. He writes, I firmly believe in this product. Because of Spinrite, people bring me their PCs when the other guys can't get them to boot. Then he says, I see that it is distributed in FreeDOS, which is awesome. I love Spinrite's DOS shell look. <laughs> he says, how did you do that? It's not a look. It's real. <laughs> uh, exactly. He says, I would love to write a small game with that DOS shell look and feel. Um, okay. Maybe run in free DOS as well. Yeah. Yeah. But I have never been able to figure out how to get that look. <laughs> Are there any of your free examples I should be looking oh, at? Cute. Or maybe you know of a site 
I should check out. He's talking about and your ASCII said, graphics, right? Well, yeah, he's talking about the fact that it is, you know, it it is running in DOS. Right. It's a DOS app. But you from, and you have the Dynastat stuff, but that's all ASCII. Yes, you just like, drawing like, ASCII. Like, yeah, like, like you know, graphs and charts and yeah. and, and all that. And, and he says, he says, remember when MS. And then he says he has a link to edit.com. Edit.com had the orange block mouse cursor. That's the look I want. <laughs> I've never read anywhere where someone knows how to do that. And yet, Spinrite has it, minus the mouse. Any help? <laughs> Thank you, Matt. So I just got a kick out of that. So One way to do it, use DOS. <laughs> for what it's worth, yes, uh, he, he has successfully recovered unbootable systems for people, three unmountable nice. drives, and uh, other data recovery work. So thanks for sharing that and a, and a reminder to our listeners that Spinrite works. And if Ma- Matthew, if you're listening, um, yeah, uh, it is, I mean, this is the real deal. This is Spinrite running in DOS. Now, 6.1 will remain there. 6.2 where I'm going to see how much more I can do for USB um, will st- stay the same. But I'm, I'm planning to finally leave that environment for Spinrite 7. I'm going to, uh, you know, I- I'm not going to put myself in a time constraint uh, on, for, for Spinrite 7. That basically, I'm writing 6.1 and 6.2 to buy myself time so that it, so that they, I mean, basically... I don't think seven will ever be uh, nothing will ever be able to be faster than the next version of Spinrite. I'm going all out for performance uh, to meet the needs of t- contemporary drives that just keep getting larger and larger, so that you'll be able to do, use you know Spinrite overnight on a on a three or four terabyte drive and have it done in the morning. That's the goal. Um, seven will be all kinds of features that people now want like simultaneous operation across all the drives they have there's no reason i can't do that except none of the existing infrastructure in spinrite supports that or drive cloning and file system awareness and all these you know like the next the next generation of things that it would be fun to do i i I enjoy developing spinrite so so six the six series the the these next things are there to tide me over while I start from scratch. I'm going to start over. Um, I found the the kit that I want to use. Um, it'll. Uh, I'm still going to be natively booting my own system that is not hosted on an OS, but but doing my own, uh, but with a GUI interface and a mouse and and you know and a and a contemporary UI and and a. A, a sort of a new foundation that will then, uh, in the same way that a multi-windowed interface does, allow me to grow the product uh, in the future. Whereas I'm sort of stuck with, I mean, nice as the DOS shell look is, uh, <laughs> the user interface is, is limited. And, you know, functioning in a DOS, DOS-based environment, uh, I've sort of reached the, the limit of what I can do. So that's where I'm headed in the future. Well, for those who wish to give that great graphical user interface look uh, with DOS <laughs> and ASCII prompts, there is a library for Linux called Curses. 
you could write to it with Python or Ruby or anything else or Bash Shell that'll let you do exactly that. And it's a library. I bet you you wrote a library with graphics primitives and assembler. Steve does his own libraries. He doesn't use anybody else's. But for those who don't have access to Steve's assembly language libraries for x86, curse You know what I did? I prototyped. There was a there was a um, a uh, DOS based tool that Dan Bricklin created. Yeah. It's called called Demo. Dan yep. Bricklin's Demo. Yep. And and basically, you move the cursor around, and you could draw line art and 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 mark blocks and move things around. And so I then this is really this has always been my development style. I did the same thing with Squirrel, for example. People will remember I completely designed the user interface, and then I wired up behind it. And I did the same thing with Spinrite. I designed the UI because that I, I'm UI-centric. That's what the user sees. So I, I think of the product from a standpoint of how it's going to be used. And oftentimes that gets me in trouble because I'll be overly aggressive. I'll say, oh, this is what I want it to do. And then when it comes time to doing it, it's like, oh, this is going to be hard, but you know, I'm now I'm committed because I know <laughs> I know how I want it to look. Now I just have to make it go. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the that's the approach I take, and it was with it was with that beautiful screen editor that Dan Bricklin yeah. wrote, and then it probably just output a, a arrays of uh, ASCII numbers that you would then just blast on the screen. I would imagine. I wish I could say I did. Actually, I wrote I wrote raw native code. To implement each page, but <laughs> I did. I did write a now move over once and put ASCII three seven four. Now move over again once and put ASCII three seven four, like that. Well, I had blocks of text. I had strings, and and, and yeah, there was I mean, a lot you of could make. I've done this. I mean, I used to write stuff like this all the time. You just make yeah. an array that contains all, and then you uh, iterate over the array, and it's very quick. Yes, correct. Very easy. I'm sure you did that. I did that. Yeah. I know you did. <laughs> uh, our show today, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back and talk about uh, payment tokenization. Yep. Our topic of the day, how why Apple Pay works. And why indirection is a good thing. Yeah. But first, a word from our friends at uh, Citrix. Actually, they use indirection to keep your file sharing safe and secure. We've already talked many times on this show about why you don't want to send email attachments, but I always get... Uh, especially from people in business, well, but I need to. I have to send the contract or the PowerPoint presentation or the, I don't know what, the PDF. How do I, how, Leo, how if I don't attach it? Well, let me, first let me explain why it's bad to do attachments. First of all, it is still to this day, in fact, I'm sure with that spear phishing attack we talked about at the top of the show, the zero day, uh, that's the vector. It's still to this day the very most common way that viruses get spread. Uh, it also isn't secure in general because, of course, email is like a postcard. Everybody along the way can read it if they should choose. Plus, you get the issues of bounce back. Our files today are so big that frequently you're sending a file that will actually be just too big for the mailbox and it'll bounce back. And you may never even know it. You may think they got it. There's reason after reason after reason to use share file. I, I, got, I got one in my mailbox uh, while the show was going on. A guy said... Oh, I'm sorry, uh, I, I didn't give you that uh, password, or I can't remember what it was, but I just got back from church group, so here it is. He obviously sent it to the wrong person. Now, if you do it with ShareFile, you can control 
who can open that file, for how long. You'll get a notification telling you who opens your files and when. You can password protect your files. This is the way you should do it. And if you use the Outlook plugin, it's, it's just like sending an email attachment. But it's not. If you go to sharefile.com right now, you could try it free for 30 days. Let me show you. This is my sharefile uh, dashboard for me. You see the Twit logo? You, this is branded. So when I send a file, I use it for radio stations. When I send audio files to the radio stations, uh, they get a branded page. It's got my logo on it. Here, I'll show you what, how, how it works. Here, let's go in. I have a synchronization program running on all my uh, computers, so it's automatically copying these files up to the ShareFile uh, cloud. So all I have to do is save a file to a local folder, and it's in the ShareFile space. Click the Send button. You can do the email from the web interface or do what I do, which is get a secure link. Note, I can set a lot of parameters here. Email me when the item's been downloaded, and it require recipients to enter name and email, if you wish. You don't have to. When the expiration is for this file, one day... Uh, one year, never, how many they can download. When you click Send Files, you're going to be provided with a secure, obscure HTTPS link that you can then email. You know, just I paste them into the email. And uh, they can, by the way, the nice thing about this is they can share that as well. So I'll send it to the radio uh, network, and then they send it to the client, and it works for all of them. You don't have to do it that way, but that's how I do it. And when they click it, this is what they get. Very straightforward. Uh, they get see what type of file, how big it is, and a download button. They don't have to sign up for anything. They don't have to be a share file member. It's so simple, so secure, so easy. Try it free for 30 days. You can use ShareFile to request files as well. Visit Citrix ShareFile dot, just ShareFile.com. Click the podcast listeners link at the top if you would. That's a special link so that they'll know you heard about it on Security Now. That's the offer code too, by the way. Security Now, one word. Security now. Specify your industry because ShareFile is HIPAA compliant, compliant with regulations in many industries, including financial services. You want to make sure you take advantage of that, too. ShareFile.com. Click the microphone at the top of the homepage and use our offer code security now. Um, okay, so um, I, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I began digging into the backstory, essentially, behind... Uh, Apple's pay technology, wanting to bring an understanding of it uh, to our listeners for the podcast. And what I quickly ran into is something called EMVCO, EMVCO as in company, which is an LLC, a limited liability corporation, formed back in 2002, originally by Europay, MasterCard, and Visa, thus E. MV, uh, EMV Co. Uh, then uh, JCB, which was originally uh, the Japan Credit Bureau, joined two years later in 04. Then American Express joined five years later in 09. And then most recently, uh, China's Union Pay uh, joined last year. Um, and so now there are six main entities, each sharing a one sixth interest in this. EVM Co., uh, China Union Pay, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover, and JCB. And the, the, the charter for EMV Co. has been to agree upon standards for moving credit processing forward. And um, the, the major 
concept is tokenization. That's the that's the it's it's the it's the buzzword we heard during the Apple Pay presentation. But as I guess you know, Apple tends to do. Uh, they gave us sort of the feeling that this was all theirs. Um, it is th- Apple, without question, did a lot of work because the 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 spec which exists really should be called a meta specification. It it describes the players in the dance, but not not the details of of at the low level of how they communicate so the and and even today that's still somewhat obscure um there is there's this notion of um the the term is um uh shoot i'm blanking on the oh the term is cryptogram and this is like okay, cryptogram, and so I'm seeing the word used, but nowhere am I seeing a clear description of what it is. So at least in the meta specification, it's just sort of like okay, you know, a man behind the curtain, uh, it's there, but we don't talk about what that is in detail here because we're too busy talking about you know the committee meetings that uh, that we had and and who does what. Um. But here's the concept. Um, the problem with breaches of security is credit cards escape. Credit cards are being given to the merchant. Credit cards are being given to, you know, when you pay for your meal at a restaurant. Credit cards are being put into websites when you purchase things. And the... The term is PAN, uh, primary account number. And so a PAN, P-A-N, is the, uh, the official term for, the, for the, the user's actual account number. The, you know, what, what is currently the only number we have, the account number, which is our credit card. And, of course, it's accompanied with um, expiration and what's, you know, the CVV, the card verification code, you know, the little full three or four digit thing on the back that you often have to use, which is explicitly not on the mag stripe so that it, it can't be lost uh, if the mag stripe is, is captured. Um, so this payment token, what the payment token is, is a stand-in for the PAN, the P-A-N, this, you know, what we're used to as the um, typically a 16-digit, but it turns out it can vary from 13 to 19 digits. So it can be longer than 16. I've never encountered a 19-digit one, but but they can be. So, so this is, so the first thing to know is that this payment token looks like a credit card number. It is processed like a credit card number. And in fact, it even obeys that the so-called LUN, L-U-H-N code. That's that deal that helps catch digit transposition where all credit card numbers to be valid 
um, there's a sum of nines. That is, you add the digits up, and essentially, uh, you always end up. I don't know. I'm. I, I remember what the algorithm was. I implemented it for GRC's e-commerce system myself. But uh, anyway, you can look it up. Uh, the idea is that it sort of has uh, credit card numbers have a built-in checksum. So the 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 key takeaway here is that what we're being given with a payment token is a pseudo credit card number. It and that's the key. It's not. You know, it's not some base 64 thing. It's not some crypto string. It's not ASCII. It's not, you know, it, it is a credit card number. And and it was this it was done this way because for as it moves through most of the system, there's no difference. No one can tell the difference. So, for example, um, uh, oh, and. As best I can tell, I saw one reference to the possibility that it was a a per-use token, but largely I think that's not the case. I think that's what Apple said it was, but... And I don't think it is. I, I, in fact, I don't even think it is in the Apple case. I, I know, for example, that there is an, an instance that, that there's another use where they call them card-on-file merchants, um, and for example, Amazon is a card on file merchant where meaning that they have their customers cards on file and so that we're able to log in, reauthenticate and just and click the, you know, the buy it now button and and bang, our credit card is charged. So so Apple, so, in other words, Apple hasn't documented this. Correct. Really? OK, correct. And and and. The documentation that I have seen, but and, and I, I, sh I should say that I've watched, I've sat through really boring webinars <laughs> of, of of executives who were, I mean, like First Data has one, and there's links in the show notes to the First Data. There, 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 there's a page there, Leo. If you scroll to the bottom, there's a 60 minute webinar of where the slides don't change nearly often enough, <laughs> and and people who don't actually seem to know what they're talking about are talking about things oh. nevertheless and oh, so their dear. terminology i, I kind of cringe because it's like oh okay, that's not that can't yeah. be right but uh, but i'm trying to like get the that the truth out of this and but so my belief is and so it so the the there may be a one-time something that is apparently what apple said because I was there, okay, listening carefully. I was, yep, I was listening too. But go ahead. <laughs> I believe I'm. I, I'll I'll go back and check. Is that there was a one-time use to token and, and it, or a one-time use number that you that not the credit card number, correct? And which would be the token, presumably, and a and a, a, another pin that's associated with the Touch ID or some something else. But it was a two it was two factors or two things. And I'm pretty sure Apple said one-time use, but maybe they didn't mean on both. Maybe the token is not one-time. So yes. Um, so before I forget, because maybe I've been Tim Cook to say, doesn't know. 
I've been. Uh, he uh, he may have been part of the webinar, and I no, I mean he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. It was this was all first day to people, but they were in the lab. Uh, one of the guys has used the Apple Pay system twenty times. He's giddy over you know the user experience, and so so the way this works is when when okay, I, I'm I'm sort of out of sequence here. Uh, way back in the chain of action, so we have a we have a say that we're uh, in, in a retail establishment, uh, and there's a touch pay terminal. So you've got the purchaser with their iPhone, you've got the the merchant who you're visiting. They have a essentially a. Um, a provider that they have a relationship with. And this is a company like First Data is a it, 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 they're like a a a credit clearinghouse. Uh, Nova is one. Uh, and and for example, when when I, that's the relationship I have with GRC's e-commerce system because as as we know, I wrote my own did all my own e-commerce system from scratch um, back before I did Spinrite 6. And so I have a relationship with one of these clearing houses direct. I don't remember if it's Nova, but like first data is one and so forth. So it's not directly with Visa or MasterCard or Discover, but it's one stage removed. It's with a credit processing, you know, uh, um, like merchant services company. And then it, and then they tie in to the credit card processing network where Visa and MasterCard and American Express and so forth reside. So so there's this pipeline that the credit card goes through. And and what's been what's happened is there's been an one more player stuck in this chain on the other side of that payment clearing house in front of Visa MasterCard American Express um, and the, and they turn and the terminology is a token service provider a TSP a token service provider the token service provider is responsible for maintaining something called the token vault and the token vault is where the relationship between the the credit the actual pan the primary account number which is the credit card number and the token are are maintained the token is mostly a random number so that's key it is not cryptographically de- derived from the credit card because if that key ever got loose, then all of the relationships would be vulnerable. Instead, you, you, it is... You've read this document from Apple, right, that says when you add a credit or debit card with Apple Pay, the actual card numbers are not stored on the device nor on Apple servers. Instead, a unique device account number is assigned. Is, that, is this the uh, token uh, encrypted and securely stored in a secure element on your phone? Each transaction is authorized with a one-time unique number using your device account number, that doesn't change, obviously. And instead of using the security code from the back of your card, Apple Pay creates a dynamic security code. 
So it sounds like not only is a credit card not involved, number not involved, but it sounds like it's using a one-time number each time. No. It's um, not? So, no. What's also in your phone is one of these tokens because because as i understand it and again this you know unfortunately we what we don't yet have is real clarity but but from from the people i painfully listened to it was clear that the phone actually contains a 16 digit static token that's the identifier that, for the phone no no. That is the to it's the token. Uh, and so he so here's the process. Um and again, I'm subject to you know the the fact that there's that there's still not complete clarity is that that the when the when this association is created, so for example, a, a user, a iPhone user scans a new card. Right, because we know right. that they're able to do that. They take yeah. a picture of their credit card. Yeah. the The card number is extracted. The card number is and and there's something called a bin, b i n, which is the like the ranges of card numbers. It turns out that there are there are that within within the 16 digit. For example, people may have noticed, and I don't remember now, but like all cards beginning with five. Are Mastercard all cards right. beginning with four are Visa all cards beginning with like six or something are American Express or there's 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 some so there's there's a yeah, system you can like validate that. these card numbers obviously that happens all the time on the web but what the but the point is that's actually the card numbers contain routing information right so that they there there's this notion of of routing there's a routing database and so as so. So, so the user scans the card now, the scans the card. Um, from this routing information, the that number goes to the it goes to the actual issuing entity, Visa, MasterCard, or whomever. Now they are token service providers. I know that. They so they offer this new service, but there's also Third-party token service providers. Could Apple example, be one? I don't think so. I was looking carefully so to see this about is, that. Look, at, this is Apple's unequivocal. When you add a card to Passbook, its number is never stored or shared on your device or Apple servers. I mean, that's unequivocal. I think that's, I think that's true. And so here's the here's the point: is that what happens is the token, the the credit card, the credit card number helps helps. This this system find the issuer, then they request from a token service provider a token, and ah. that's and that's where this mapping gets made because they so have a, to know whose card it is. Correct. There has to be and a mapping, and so so a what looks like a credit card number but is not the token is 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 associated. With that, with that user's actual the, that PAN that which is called the primary account number that which is the credit card number, and that sixteen-digit number comes back. The bank also provides the artwork, which is why what we see looks gorgeous, and the last four digits 
of the PAN, which is actually the credit card number, that is kept. Um, so what the user sees is this beautiful looking credit card art, which came from the issuer, from Chase or from MasterCard or whomever. And they, they see the last four digits of their actual credit card number and that's what's used on receipts and so forth so that they they can like figure out which card they use to buy something and, and that but that's all that's there so so their credit card number is not present but a stand-in for their credit card number is present and and so that's what this whole payment tokenization is now Apple could very well be doing more than that. That is, they there could be some d- additional hocus pocus. I've 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 heard I've heard mention of encryption. And so what I've said so far, nothing is about encryption. So the so the beauty of the system I've just described is it was a tiny change to the existing infrastructure only in this in this multi-party system which involves the movement of what looks like of like what is credit card numbers the idea is that because we have a routing system that knows how to route based on a credit card number then we're able to add another entity we're able to add this thing called a token service provider that provides indirection that that's where i'm talking about indirection they maintain the so-called token vault which is is the which remembers the association between the randomly assigned credit what looks like a credit card number but is now just a token and the actual credit card number and they own a block of these credit card numbers so that they're routed to so that these pseudo credit card numbers are routed through them and that's where the mapping occurs so the beauty is that the merchant thinks they're taking and even the merchant terminal thinks it's receiving a credit card number and from some people it is from some people they'll still be swiping their credit card but apple pay users will be presenting a pseudo credit card number which runs through the system in the same through the same process except because it's a different range of numbers it go it gets switched over to this token service provider where it's turned into at the last stage it's turned into the actual credit card number as it goes to the final routing stage and the beauty of this whole system is your actual credit card number is never exposed. So, for example, card on file organizations like Amazon. Oh, and, and that, that, that's the other thing. There could be and probably will be multiple mappings between pseudo credit card numbers and your one real credit card. So, and that those mappings could be and probably would be at can take um offered by maintained by different token service providers because they would just be happening you know like amazon could could be could could choose to use a different token service provider and amazon would decide 
we no longer want the responsibility of maintaining actual credit card numbers. So we're going to swap them for tokens. And so Amazon says, you know, using a, a, a back a back end API um, works with their token service provider and exchanges all of their users' credit cards, actual credit card numbers with tokens. And and then the whole system continues to work. Amazon then no longer actually one of the things that happens is they no longer need to worry about the full level of compliance because they're not actually no they're no longer storing and needing to encrypt users' financial data. They they have this level of indirection. And what what this means is because you have a, an an n an n way to one mapping is if breaches and 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 losses of information occur it's instantaneous to cancel a a given organization's mapping so if for example uh you know RSA got hacked if RSA was tokenized that is they were only main, they were only maintaining tokens rather than actual credit card information on file they could immediately cancel the tokens and and they would no longer be usable, except there's one other piece of this, and that is there's this notion, a new notion of domains. Right now, there's, there's, we are in a domainless environment with credit cards, which means that a credit card number is honored no matter where it comes from. Now, of course, credit card companies' security tries to help us out. You know, we've talked about how like I can't buy gas with one of my cards because it just raises the alarms whenever I do. And there, there's also been situations where someone has flown across the country and then tried to rent a car and, and it was denied because they used their card that morning to put gas in their car or to, you know, to, to, to park uh, at the airport. And then suddenly they appeared across the country and again, security systems go crazy because it's like, wait a minute, you know, there's two, you know, 3,000 miles separation between two uses of the same card in six hours. And so that seems questionable. Now what happens is Amazon's use of tokens would be tied to Amazon. So no one could use the token that Amazon received from their token service provider except Amazon. So this is a whole nother layer of security we've never had before. Similarly, the token that would be issued to Apple um, or actually issued to an iPhone user, but would but it would be known to be an Apple iPhone token, it could never be used as a credit card number by anyone else. So so this th- th- this is another aspect of this and again this is not Apple's invention. All of this existed. Um, Apple will probably probably deserves credit as being the entity that that finally got this off the ground. And why don't we pause now and then I'll 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 finish <laughs> my additional thoughts. Okay. Very interesting. And uh, you're probably wondering why I'm wearing this hat. Okay, I, I, we need we need to find out. Yeah. 
There's a baseball player for the San Francisco Giants named Pablo Sandoval. His nickname is Panda. And I donned the hat when Panda began a four-run inning in the playoffs, which is going on right now. So that's all. all right. It's sport ball. You don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Our show today brought to you by something I care about, Pro XPN, protecting your privacy online. Yes, I care a lot about that. Pro XPN is an open VPN provider. That means they host open VPN servers, which you can use to anonymize your traffic so your internet service provider can't spy on you. So the folk, the uh, the weirdo uh, sitting next to you in the coffee shop can't spy on you. The certified ethical hacker down the road can't spy on you. There's other advantages, too. You notice the Pro XPN servers are all over the world. Dallas, Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, London, Amsterdam, Singapore. So you can emerge onto the public Internet and, you know, any of those spots, eliminating geographic restrictions. Worried about your ISP spying on what you do, worrying about the six strikes rule. Worried about using a public Wi-Fi? Then OpenVPN for, is for you. The host, ProXPN.com. They're awesome. In fact, visit ProXPN.com slash twit for more information and to sign up with a special deal. They have mobile apps. You know, traditionally on a mobile app, you couldn't use VPN, but uh, you had to use PPTP, which is less secure. But uh, now, thanks to their mobile apps, you can. They've got apps for iOS and Android. They also uh, make it easy to use. Uh, if you've ever tried to set up OpenVPN, this makes it so much easier. Their Windows and Mac apps give you even more control. You can select ports, connect at startup, even select which programs should be shut down should your anonymous connection be interrupted. You know what I mean there. ProXPN works with iOS or Android. ProXPN works with your computer. ProXPN works in public, public works in private. World-class customer support, too. And all you have to do is go to ProXPN.com slash twit and enter the offer code SN50 to receive 50% off the monthly price when you sign up for a 12-month subscription. It means it's less than 5 bucks a month when you sign up for a year. And that lasts forever, so that's nice. If you're not satisfied, cancel within seven days. You'll get a full refund. ProXPN.com slash twit. The offer code is SN50. ProXPN accepts payments through Visa, PayPal, and, yes, Bitcoin. I love that. Find out more at ProXPN.com slash twit. And don't forget to use the offer code SN50 to save 50% when you sign up. ProXPN.com slash twit. All right, continuing so, on. So, I, so um, I, rem I, I, I originally encountered... When I was looking at this, um, this sort of this mythology, which has numbers that I think makes it real, um, that Apple has been aiming at this for some time, um, that they began work in earnest uh, at the beginning of this year, in January of 2014, that, that Visa had a thousand people on the project, J.P. Morgan Chase had more than 300, uh, that it was done under a cloak of super secrecy. No bank knew of any other's involvement explicitly, but they had to know that Apple was going to be uh, involving as many players as possible. So it is, it is absolutely the case that 
that Apple will probably end up earning and deserving the credit for being an, a, you know enough of a big player to to finally get this system off the ground. Lord knows it has lots of buzz. But the good news is that there are an awful lot of Android phones out there that have had NFC capability a lot longer than the Apple iPhone 6. And given the proper technology at the, at the handset, all of this is available. So one of the things that became very clear was that while Apple Pay, you know, the trademarked Apple Pay specifics is Apple and proprietary and they have some patents, um, the system in general is, is not of Apple's creation. Everything I described with token service providers and the system of, of, of routing and, and credit card numbers standing in for others, uh, that's all existed you know, before this. It just, it never really happened. And exactly as you were saying, I think before we began recording, Leo, since chip and pin has been mandated to happen next year and existing terminals will have to be upgraded, now they'll be upgraded with NFC receivers and this touch pay technology. Um, but yeah, we but all win but, then, right? Yes, yes, we all do. Does um, the Android, the wallet, Google wallet, touch and pay uh, work kind of the same way? I mean, are they all... Similar. Well, the question is the hardware support. One of the other aspects of this, I mean, there are many cool things. It's very cool that there's this notion of a domain, a do, the domain validity, where the card, where the, where the uh, token was issued, who the, who the token was issued to, and where it is then valid. Because that that means you're not actually using your credit card. You're using your token within a restricted domain. So that token isn't useful, for example, outside the, the iPhone. Well, one of the other new features is a, and it's a zero, zero to nine, nine sis, a scale of how confident we are in the, what's, what, they, what they call the, the user to token binding. That is, what's the security at the user end? And one of the things that Apple did, again, I, I don't always think they do this deliberately. I think they sort of luck into some of these things. But, you know, I, I've heard you mention through, for the last several weeks, Leo, many times on, on, the, on the network, uh, you've referred to how good the Touch ID system is yeah, on the It works very iPhone. reliably, yeah. And boy, I wanted to jump in there and say yes. I no long. I used to have mine covered up on my iPhone 5s. Of course, I famously had the uh, the typo keyboard, and so I had no access to it. Now I'm back with the six. It has never failed me once. Yeah. I did. I did chuckle a little bit watching it training more than uh -huh. the iPhone 5s yeah. did. Yeah. You know, they they learned their lesson. They they needed to give it more samples up front to get it to get it trained up but it just works perfectly and so i think with that and with this notion of the, the the secure enclave sometimes referred to as the secure element 
the idea that you have a coprocessor that that is that is read only. That is, you can ask it to do crypto work for you. You can say, like, encrypt something for me or hash something for me. But it uses a key that it generates internally, which it never exports. There is no API, no way to get that exported. You can only have have it do the work for on your behalf and then provide the results, which is really good security. And that's it's intimately involved in processing the data from the touch ID processor in the phone. And so the point is that that Apple is able to assert and substantiate a in this rating system and a very high degree of confidence that is of security. And what that lets them do is negotiate a lower cost for transaction. For, through, through the payment system, because for example, traditionally we only we, there was just a binary. It was called CNP, card not present or card present, and card not present transactions had a higher cost to them, a tra- higher transaction processing fees because they were regarded as less secure. Because who knows why the card's not present? But you know it could have been stolen, and so it's not present. Whereas as as opposed to a card present transaction, you know, where you're doing a card swipe, a physical card swipe means that it's just likely, the, it's much more likely that it is the user, you know, the, the, the user is actually holding the card than some sort of, you know, electronic hack happened over the internet uh, and that we're, we're doing a card non-present transaction. So, for example, all of the, all of this, the spinrite purchases that I process through our clearinghouse are card non-present transactions. And so I pay a higher fee to have those transactions performed than Apple is paying on oh, for theirs huh. because, because they've established a higher level of security, verifiable security for their transactions. Well, I'm looking forward. So, we'll find out more Thursday, presumably. I hope Apple will publish uh, more details. They did put out a security document, didn't they, today? Somebody said that. Uh, oh, okay. I've not seen it. Yeah. Um, and, and so so to, to sort of explain this, it's there is something more that I have not found documentation on. There is there's something called the, – it, it's based on the Visa – a spec called 3D Secure, and that's this cryptogram. And it's not clear whether it's a hash or whether it's encryption or what. But but it 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 one of the things we need is we we need the existing system to be able to function with with something that is not the user's credit card number. And that's where this whole token service provider that has a, that is issued blocks of of tokens from which it randomly creates these associations to the user's actual credit card number and that this thing looks like a credit card number and moves through so so it could be that there is a a, a challenge response mechanism there there could be additional crypto there's something called a cryptogram that we'll get clarification on and I'll certainly explain what that is as soon as we know for sure what it is um, but in in any event apple 
Apple invented some of the glue. They did not invent this underlying technology, which is good news because it means that that um, and I and there was another piece of news that I meant to include uh, that Samsung. It's an a, like a month, like within the last few weeks, Samsung announced something like this, and so they may they may, may be riding on the coattails. And the fact that now that they're you know Apple sort of got these specs up and up and running. Um, other people are going to be able to do this too. So the good news is, I mean, I, I was a little worried if it was only iPhone six and people who had compatible terminals. This was going to be a little rough getting off the ground. I thought. In fact, I, I saw one one in one of these webinars. They were saying that there's a that Apple says iPhones have a three year typical three year cycle life. That is the typical That's iPhone right. user. Yeah is updating every three years. So they were seeing and preparing for a three-year, you know, curve, a, a, you know, adoption curve, which, you know, uh, you know, in Visa and MasterCard, <laughs> life is probably acceptable. It's like, okay, yeah, three years, that's fine. Everybody will be up to speed in three years. Everybody, within three years, everyone will have an iPhone 6 or 7 or 8, and those will all be NFC capable and Apple Pay capable, and, and off we go. So the good news is I think that Android users very soon will end up having a, a essentially a, a touch pay compatible solution. Sub, subject to the technology in the phone offering the security that is needed and that is scalable. You know the 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 APIs now have the notion of what is the security environment at the at the transaction point, and that 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 um, is reflected throughout uh, the entire transaction. So uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that perhaps tomorrow there'd be some uh, information uh, about Open SSL. Yes, and uh, about one o'clock, right when we started the show, uh, this was posted. Um, on the InfoSec diary, ah, there is there has been an OpenBSD patch which, which perhaps uh, triggers or or gives you some information about what that SSL bug is. Uh, the bug affects SSL three is critical. So far, there hasn't been any release. We're uh, we're waiting for that from OpenSSL.org, but this is the OpenBSD patch. And according to InfoSec, Johannes Ulrich writing, yep, this looks good. like uh, memory corruption slash use after free vulnerability is being patched. Ooh, that's not good. So give you something, a little, little homework for tonight, Steve. <laughs> uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, hey, Steve Gibson, he does this every week. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. Every Wednesday, uh, I'm sorry, Tuesday, around about 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2000 UTC, we start talking about security. And uh, if you don't uh, hear it, you might miss something important. So make sure you listen every week. You can watch live, listen live. But if you want uh, on-demand versions after the fact, we have a whole panoply of choices. Steve has 16 kilobit audio at his uh, website, grc.com. Uh, also, very nicely uh, written uh, transcripts. 
that you can peruse, listen along, or just read them by themselves. That's probably the smallest form. Not as much fun as watching, but hey, you know, to each his own. That's grc.com. You'll also find Spin right there, Steve's Bread and Butter, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Many freebies. It's also where you should go if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to get to Steve. Uh, they have a, He has a feedback form there, grc.com slash feedback. Doesn't accept email. You could tweet him. Sometimes we'll use tweets. But that's the best place to go, grc.com slash feedback. you also find lots of great freebies, information about squirrel, vitamin D, carbless <laughs> diets, everything. It's all there. It's, it's, just, it's like Dr. Bronner's soap bottle. It's just everything you'd want in one place, grc.com. Uh, you can also get uh, higher quality audio and video versions of the show at our website, twit.tv slash sn. And it's, you know, it's, it's like one of the oldest podcasts in the world. So it's everywhere. <laughs> it, is. it is. Yeah. Eight or nine years we've been in the making. Here. Yeah. Uh, other podcasts have come and gone and we're still going strong. A lot of them. Yeah. I kind of, you know, I remember when I was mad at Kevin Rose because he did Dignation because it competed with Twit and, well, that's gone. And then I was mad at John C. Dvorak because he did Cranky Geeks and it competed with Twit. And, well, that's gone. So basically we've just outlasted everyone. Uh, well, and our listeners have. We've and you have, too, listeners. at home, yes. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it, it, you can get it. There's a Twit app on every platform, including Roku. You could watch live. You can watch after the fact. It's There's all sorts of ways to do it. I don't think it's too tough. Just, uh, just Google security now. You'll find it. Thanks, Steve. We will be back next week, and uh, we'll probably be doing questions and answers. But yep. who knows? I think we probably will. Depending on the news. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, my friend. Thanks. Secure